Hey everyone, welcome to Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore, and I'm joined uh, by my two co-hosts, Bailey Perkins. Hello, ma'am. How are you? Hello, Andy. I'm great. Great. Andy Bailey and I are both wearing green shirts today. For listeners at home, you can imagine us in green t-shirts. Uh, and also, Dr. Scott Melson. Hello, sir. What's up, man? Fresh from the coal mines. The front Indeed. lines. Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. I mean, no, I mean, it's, I'm just... Uh... I don't know if it's the front lines anymore, right? Because like it's over. Like we beat the we beat the coronavirus. So don't be saying that. That's a lie. Don't say that. So don't make me make you drink Lysol. Drink bleach. Or one of those things. So is the it really the front lines anymore? I don't know. <laughs> Just the light, the bright light. Um, all right. So quick announcement as a reminder. As I said, the last two weeks, mark your calendars for CivicsCon on May 29th. Registration will go live on May 1st. We're getting closer every day. We got logos, we got colors. It's starting to come together. I'm very excited. Um, just locked down a poet today for the lunch hour. That's exciting. A little civic poetry. All right. Well, that's the only announcement for this week. Now, last week, we spent the whole time talking about COVID 19 and the epidemic, which is obviously super important and pertinent to our everyday life. This week, we're going to take a little break from that because uh, things are just getting worse. That's really all. Anyone needs to know. And, and and like, it's getting worse at a slightly slower pace than it was before, perhaps. Some optimism in that. Um, and so this week, we're going to kind of catch up on what's happening politically in Oklahoma for the last week or two. And there's been a lot. I mean, every week, I was as I was making our kind of our show notes for today, I was like, man, some of this stuff I could have sworn was two or three weeks ago. And yet it was only this week. It really is. It's crazy. Like, yeah, it's crazy. Well, and listeners, as a reminder, um, we try to put in as, as much of this stuff, including the links into show notes. And the easiest way to find that is if you go to our website, letsfixthisok.org, and then click on where it says podcast in the menu, it'll take you to our Captivate page, which Captivate is the host we use for our podcast. And you can view all the show notes on there and it has everything has a lot of functionality with rich text formatting and all that. So, so um, yeah. So the first thing is we're kind of go roughly in chronological order, I think. And so the first thing is that governor Stitt has announced that state question 802, which is Medicaid expansion will be on the ballot on June 30th. Scott, is it safe to say we've been talking about doing a healthcare series for like a year, but in that year, we also had a pandemic. I'm just going to say our our healthcare series is is uh, on hold indefinitely. Yeah, I mean, because the thing was is like, I mean, literally every time. So we actually recorded the first episode with uh, Carly Putnam um, and had some uh, technical some technical snafus. But then every time we would sit down to do the rest of it, something would happen, right? Something would happen with Medicaid expansion. Something would happen with healthcare at the national level. Something would happen with a waiver problem. I mean, like, like with the working group, like literally every week there were so many developments. We were like, damn it, just hold on for a, a weekend, <laughs> you know? And then, uh, and then the coronavirus came and, and that kind of put a damper on everything. But, you know, I mean, it's, we got a lot of time between now and June and now that coronavirus is over, maybe we have time to, maybe we have time to, to do the, to do the series. 
I'm going to keep saying coronavirus is over though. Like, even though it's not, I mean, I, maybe I won't, I don't know. I'm just, I'm, I'm in a very snarky, annoyed place in terms of public policy today. I'm, that's we're all shocked to hear that, Scott. I can't believe <laughs> that's never happened. <laughs> uh, we have spoken pretty extensively about Medicaid expansion on this show before. I'm sure we can get someone from the campaign to join us uh, between now and June 30th to talk about it. We've got two months. Um, and so let's today, let's not spend too long on that um, because there's been some other more pressing things that have popped up. So the next thing requires a brief recap, right? So two weeks ago on Monday, April 6th, Governor Stitt canceled the Board of Equalization meeting because his digital transformation project was not funded. And we talked about that some. So on that day, he or that week, he signed two of the three bills that the legislature had passed that would help shore up the current fiscal year's budget. But without that third bill, there was still a $416 million budget hole in this year. So basically, it meant that state government was funded through the end of April, but May and June had no money, right? Or not enough money. And in response, the legislative leadership scoffed. They were like, yeah, okay, don't sign it. Even if you don't, it still becomes law. Joke's on you. So a week later, uh, on Tuesday the 13th, so that was last week, House and Senate leaders actually sued the governor to try to force the Board of Equalization meeting, saying, you have to meet. Like, we've already passed the bill. It's already been de facto signed, or it's in effect. But it doesn't actually work unless this board meets to declare the revenue failure. So it has to happen. And that would allow OMES to move money from the rainy day fund into the general revenue fund so we can actually spend it on state services. And in response to that, the governor scoffed and was like, you can't make me have this meeting. Well, this week, rather quietly, the governor unceremoniously called the meeting of the board of equalization. They met via zoom and declared the revenue failure. So that's all happened, which means the money's been moved. Everything's okay. We can fund government through the end of this fiscal year, which is the end of June. Now, I think everyone agrees that next year is looking bad already. And we'll talk more about part of why, but we can't declare that the revenue failure has happened for fiscal year 21 until we are in fiscal year 21. And we have some, you know, tax receipts in 21. Gosh, I didn't even think about this, but things will be delayed anyway, because the income tax or will it look better? Because that would be money. From it will this look better. Year. Yeah, because money from this year is actually going to be paid in next year. Right. Yeah, look at that. Help a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Less terrible, <laughs> which is maybe the theme of this episode. Um, and during that meeting, Bailey, I, I know you, I think, watched part of it um, or, or have a little more information. Tell us a little bit about some of the other nuances to that Board of Equalization meeting. Well, during the Board of Equalization, uh, they talked about the budget picture, not just for the shortfall, as Andy mentioned, for uh, the next couple of months, the last part of fiscal year 20, but also what the picture could look like for uh, fiscal year 21, which starts July 1st. Um, one of the critiques, I was on a um, video conferencing 
uh, with an organization um, where Pro Tem Treat talked about um, what happened during that Board of Equalization meeting. He mentioned that um, many of the legislative leadership didn't get an advanced copy of uh, the agenda for that meeting. And so there was an extra point on there um, that talked about um, calculations on what the budget picture is going to look like for fiscal year 21. Um, the legislature was expecting about a $500 million or so uh, budget shortfall for the next year because of what's happening with the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, with oil and gas downturn. Um, but the Board of Equalization reported at this meeting that they're projecting a $1.3 billion shortfall. And so um, on both sides of the House and the Senate, there um, isn't clarity to them on the data used to come up with that amount. Um, and so they want to do more digging and find out more about the numbers of um, how um, the Board of Equalization came to the conclusion that there could be a $1.3 billion shortfall. Um, and what that means in real terms is um, our state agencies could be facing massive cuts with a $1.3 billion shortfall. Um, if they were to include education like in healthcare agencies, which makes up probably a, a significant chunk of the budget, probably nearly half, then that would mean 9% cuts across the board. And so if you were to take education and, and healthcare agencies out of that, that means some agencies could be facing 20 to 25% cuts, which could be devastating for many of our smaller state agencies. Um, and so the legislature wants to see more of a larger picture um, to understand the data better. And as Andy mentioned in July, um, that's when we'll really have the knowledge of how much the legislature will have to work with. But they still have to make a decision about the budget before May 30th. And so that's the other piece, too, is um, do you make a budget based on the worst case scenario or do you make a budget based on um, and I'd say the, the worst case scenario would be that one point three billion dollar number? Or do you build um, a budget um, that that takes a risk of not take into account that 1.3 billion. So we'll, we'll see how, what happens in the next few weeks as the legislature meets. Well, and I think one thing that bears, that bears mentioning too about this the meeting and kind of the presentation that the governor saved is the governor gave is that he's, uh, he's actually advocating for like, uh, like across the board, like I think 1.2% cuts um, for this fiscal year, like for the remainder of this year to try and not use as much money from the rainy day fund and so one of the things that he was trying to illustrate was, in his view, again, using this $1.3 billion uh, shortfall that the OMS is forecasting that the legislature is like, um, excuse, please, where did you get that number? Um, he's saying either cut a little bit now, cut a little bit next year, and then have to cut a little bit more in fiscal year 2022, or don't cut anything now, spend down the ready day fund, and then you're looking at massive cuts like moving forward, right? Like he's one of the reasons I think he put this out there, even though it's for the next two fiscal years, is he's trying to build support for the idea of 
necessary 1.2% cuts now, which he floated a couple weeks ago and house and Senate leadership were like uh, hard pass. Right. Yeah. So I think that's an interesting point that, you know, often I think one of uh, our, our critiques are some of my critiques is that state government is perpetually reactive and not always proactive. And it's, they don't always plan, you know, even five, 10 years down the road, right? Governor Stitt has made several attempts at planning, including like increasing the size of the rainy day fund, trying to save more money, which in hindsight, I think a lot of folks have to eat crow and recognize that it has been helpful to us this year. And he's trying to say like, look at guys, like even looking two years down the road, because there's some analysis, even at the federal level that's saying, we may not recover from this economic crisis for a couple of years. Like employment numbers won't return to normal for two years. He's like, you gotta, you gotta plan out. And so it, it might be less painful to take smaller cuts now and kind of ease into it rather than wait until have, we have a big cut in two years. And yes, Scott, as you said, the legislature said hard pass. We'll just wait and see what happens. Right. Maybe the price of oil will come back up. Yeah, I mean, it was, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's a really tough spot for them to be in, right? Like, cause, you know, yeah, it's just a, it's a, it's a, it's a tough spot for them to be in. It would be so much easier if like the state had a mechanism by which they could like increase the revenue that's brought into the treasury. But, but since they don't, I mean, they're really, they're kind of stuck here, right? Like, you, you are snarky today. Yes, the state could raise taxes. However, as we all know, that takes a three quarters majority to do it. And raising taxes in the middle of the largest economic downturn in two or three generations, possibly ever, is certainly n- not a possible, uh, a politically possible venture. It's well, not only is it not politically po- not not politically possible. Economically, it would be a terrible, terrible thing to do, right? Like economically, it would be a terrible idea to try and raise taxes right now. But but what I think this does illustrate, right, is when you do what Oklahoma has done which is cut taxes and cut taxes and cut taxes and cut taxes constantly, right? Just to, just to say that you did it, right? Just because tax rates are too high on principle, not based on anything real, right? Then what happens is now in the middle of an economic crisis, that's a lever that the state doesn't have. What would be awesome is right now, if the legislature could have an emergency session and pass an income tax for an income tax cut for everybody in Oklahoma, right? We're going to pass a temporary one to two year tax cut to put money in people's pockets and try to provide some fiscal stimulus to restart this economy as things start to open back up. But our taxes are already so low because they cut them when times are good. We don't have that lever. So not only we we're like this, like we're in a terrible situation fiscally because we've already cut taxes. We already pulled the fiscal stimulus lever when we didn't need it. Right. And so that means that we can't pull that lever now. And it means that when the bottom falls out of the oil market, we don't have any money. And then we can't raise taxes to raise money because that would be economically like preposterous in terms of policy in this kind of environment. Right. So like, this is why like patting ourselves on the back for passing a tax cut just because we did it. Cause it's great to cut taxes is like not good policy. Now that doesn't mean that you should constantly have like the highest tax rate of the nation. Right. But when taxes are already so low, you literally can't cut them anymore when you need to. And this is a time when you need to. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it is again, as I, as I think I've reiterated in every episode, I sympathize with every policymaker in America right now, because you are stuck between making, you know, two terrible decisions, right? Like if you, and in many cases, you know, we, the choice is between economy or health. And that's a 
that's a terrible choice, right? Or it's be it's between uh, economy now or economy later, right? Like there's there's all these trade offs that are not easy. Remember last year when the session was so peaceful and we had plenty of money and everyone got plenty of money and things went. Well, smoothly I wouldn't even through. say plenty of money. Well, that's true. <laughs> fair, fair fair point, Bailey. Um, but it was not as contentious as it had been before. I well, and I, this doesn't even include any dollars for. Medicaid expansion. So once we implement it, whether it's through the governor's uh, sooner care 2.0 or through the ballot measure should it pass on June 30th, um, there's still going to be needed uh, some those that, that pot of funds to be able to bring in that 90% uh, federal matching dollars. So. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. The cost of living for the state goes up just like it does for all of us. So uh, we kind of touched on it a couple of times. So to move on through our agenda, this week also, the price of crude oil went negative. And that's never happened before. Scott and I were texting and it was like, Bloomberg's tweets were like, like not him, but the Bloomberg, you know, political finance stuff was like, oil below $5, oh, below, oil below $3, below $1. And then I checked it two hours later, it was like, oh, it, it bottomed out at negative $37, which basically means there were... You know, there are ships full of oil, right, coming to the port, and they have to sell that oil to a refinery. The refinery's full. They don't want it because once they refine it, they got to go store it somewhere, and there's nowhere to store it. And so the the producers who pump the oil, put it on the ship in order to sell it, like basically had to pay the refineries. Like, listen, I will pay you to take this oil off my hands because otherwise my ship has just got to float here full of oil. And I guess like last week, the Saudis sent seven times the usual amount of oil, like in one big push. So it has deflated the markets. Now, this was only the price of oil for the contracts that end at the end of May, right? So those contracts are kind of coming due. And basically the way that works is you can buy a contract for oil that says you have the right to sell X amount of oil at a certain date. But if it looks like no one's going to buy it, you want to get rid of that contract. So you got to sell that contract. So people are trying to cut their losses and sell it for, you know, way less than they paid for it just to get it off their books. Also, so they're not caught receiving oil (laughs) that they had bought through a financial instrument when there is like a tangible commodity backing that up. Yeah, it's it's uh, I did some like research on this this week and had some, you know, talked to some friends that are in the in the business and family members and um because I was like, what is happening with oil markets? And uh, uh, what I learned from those conversations was that I, uh, despite living in Oklahoma for 36 years, know, like, uh, I have a lot to learn about the oil business. (laughs) Is what I I took away from that. Uh, It's it's really complicated and how these futures contracts work uh, and and what exactly it means. And And it doesn't, you know, I saw a lot of people on Twitter that were like, just so everybody knows, the price of a barrel of oil is not minus thirty-seven dollars and thirteen cents. Like it's these specifically this futures contract that expired. Uh, uh, that expires. That expired. Expired. You know, uh, May. But May. Yeah. Uh, Contracts in June are still like around twenty-two dollars a barrel or something. Like yeah. That. Still yeah. low, but not great. Not, but not right. Negative. Not negative. <laughs> right. yeah. 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 So I think one of the things that uh, that Congresswoman Horn um, suggested was she was proposing an idea that the U.S. basically invests an additional $3 billion to buy some of that oil 
and put it into our strategic reserves, which are already full. But basically, it's like similar to Governor Stitt's idea of expanding the rainy day fund. This is expanding the strategic oil reserve. I mean, we kind of all know that. Well, I don't know if we know, but we suspect that at some point we might reach peak oil where there's no more oil to be produced, but we will still need it. And so having a storage of that might be advantageous. It also helps um, mitigate the ebb and flow of the oil markets. So I haven't uh, read too much into her proposal, but at face value from the headline, it does make some sense. All right. Well, speaking of uh, financial news, let's move to the more local level. I haven't seen Tulsa's numbers, but I do know that Oklahoma City has basically declared a revenue failure, right, for the city um, and announced across the board departmental cuts ranging from roughly 3% for like fire and police to 11% or a little over 11% for most other departments. Now, as a reminder to listeners, this is because cities are in Oklahoma are entirely funded or, you know, 99% funded through sales tax. And what hasn't happened for the last month? Literally anything, right? So, you know, maybe, you know, we we try to do curbside, deli- you know, food every now and then, but our sales as a whole are down considerably from what they would be in normal times. And that has led to really disastrous consequences for the city. Uh, and so they went ahead and did this. And I think they're trying to, you know, absorb it as best they can. The city has some reserves as well. Um, Bailey or Scott, do you guys know much else about this? Do you have anything to add? Well, I'll just say it's another reminder of what Scott mentioned about making sound tax policy decisions when times are good. Because when we have our municipality solely rely on sales tax, there's only so far up you can go. And Oklahoma has one of the highest sales tax rates in the nation already. So we've left our municipalities in a spot where they they have no place else to go to get um, sources of revenue to take care of the things that we rely on. Like city government is, it's picking up our trash. It's our fire and police. It's um, water, all the things that we rely on on a day-to-day basis. And so I hope this is another wake-up call or reality check that we need to think about how do we diversify um, our revenue streams to make sure that we don't put municipalities in this position again in the future. Yeah, I think it's clear. And I know we said this before on the program, probably multiple times that, and I think policymakers say this, that Oklahoma needs broad tax reform, right? To like equalize how funds are distributed and make it a little more balanced. However, the prospect of doing that is such a enormous task that would like have ripples and there's a lot of disagreement, right? Everyone's, the small towns are afraid the big towns are going to get too much money and probably the reverse is also true. And how do you equitably, you know, spread money from city level, county level, state level, all that stuff. Very complicated. Is it, it is true. Yeah. People who have more money don't want to pay higher taxes. Right. I don't know. I don't know anyone who's pay higher taxes. Honestly. I mean, I think most people are willing to pay taxes at a rate provided that they at a, at a appropriate rate, provided they feel like they get an adequate return on that investment. Right. But I don't know anyone that wants to pay $1 more than they absolutely have to. Um, now, if you feel like you're paying taxes and you're not getting enough value out of it, or there's value could be added. I can see where some folks would want to pay higher rates. 
All right, so let's shift back to the state level, I guess. Cruising on through the week. Man, this has really been... We're halfway through our list. This has been a hell of a week. Um, so earlier this week, it was announced, uh, the governor had a press conference that he assigned two new gaming contracts with two tribes, the uh, Oto Mizzou tribe and the Comanche, Comanche. tribe. Mm-hmm. And those gaming compacts include sports betting. And there's another word for it, but that's essentially what it is, right? Um, and they are not on reservation. So that's another difference with these two particular tribes in the compact that was drafted with the governor. Right. Yeah. So, so the kind of quick version is that both the legislature and the attorney general came out and said, mm, nope, this is not legal or it's not okay. It's not within the bounds of the law and really pushed back hard. So again, we've seen the legislature kind of unified over this issue against the governor and the attorney general who had been representing the state in these compact negotiations for a while and pulled off, you know, back earlier this year is now publicly saying the governor's wrong on this deal. So I was reading into it. Um, and this, I think it's a fascinating issue. So from what I read, the both tribes, the Otos and the Comanches operate several casinos, five and four respectively, um, around the state already. Some of them like are up farther North, some are, down south under these compacts they would each be allowed to open up three more casinos um one of those casinos is on essentially chickasaw land i think um down in love county which is where windstar is right there on i-35 it's also Um, where the new uh it's where the new tiger king zoo is gonna be oh that's right (laughs) thanks for that (laughs) down there right behind the windstar that's right so they would each open up three new casinos the sports betting thing is like a clause that's apparently in the compact, but it obviously that is not a legal type of gambling in Oklahoma. And so it's in there with the premise that like, should the legislature approve sports bet, this would then be enacted and it would already be there. And I think it's important that both of these compacts are newly written compacts, not simply like renewed old compacts, which has been what we've done for a while. Uh, and so the actual rate that the tribes pay is lower than before, which, you know, everyone talks about the rate, uh, but you know, we, Scott and I, I think maybe even Bailey. And when she joined the show, we talked about this, that I had heard that the issue was not so much the rate, um, but it was some other aspects of the compact. And so I think this is a, uh, this is really interesting. It pushes back against the status quo in some ways, right? Like it pushes back against the legislature it pushes back against the bigger tribes, um, like the the big five, right? As well as all the others that were kind of in that group with them. Um, it pushes back on the AG, I guess. And so the next step is that these compacts have to get approval from the Bureau of Indian Affairs, which I guess they will get in the next like 30 to 45 days is their expectation. And if, if or when they get approval from that, then it they're in place. Like they have to get federal approval, but then they're good to go until, um, until someone sues after the Bureau of Indian affairs approves them. And then it goes to the Supreme court. Right. Right. Which is certainly possible. Well, I think that's what I, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I would, I would think that's what's going to happen. Um, the question I think would be who sues. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, you know, you'd think it'd be one of the other tribes, but, and this gets into like legal stuff that I don't, 
pretend to know. I think the question would be whether the other tribes have standing to sue. Um, you know, I don't know if the legislature would sue and say that this is like usurping lawmaking power that is reserved to them. I don't, I don't know the answers to these questions, but there's no clarity on who has the power to do this either. So that would be the other basis of justification in a, and some type of court proceeding would be who ha- does the governor have the sole authority to enter into this compact in the way that it was entered into? Right. So my understanding on that, and again, none of us are attorneys here, but my understanding is that the governor has the authority to negotiate and enter in these compacts. The piece that the legislature and I guess the AG seem to take exception with was that inclusion yeah, of sports book because they're like, that's not legal. You can't include that. And he's like, it's only in there on the, it's like a, it will be enacted if you pass it. And I think, you know, I, my, my view or perspective of the, of the lay of the land is that I think a lot of folks expect sports booked will be added at some point. It just hasn't happened yet. Right. Like it's part of that list of things that we're progressing towards. Um, and, and so this like turns the heat up a little bit and I'm, I'm sure the legislature doesn't, doesn't appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's going to be interesting to see, right? Like, you know, the, the tribes, uh, the tribes and the governor, I think, have uh, really good, really smart lawyers, and they seem to think that they're on solid ground. But um, the other tribes and the attorney general's office also have lots of smart lawyers, and they seem to think that they're on solid ground. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. But it's it was a very interesting. Uh, it was an interesting turn, especially because these two tribes are not like they're, you know, they're not one of the like kind of bigger tribes that's operating like you know, casinos that are doing, you know, revenue in the tens or hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, so it's kind of a little bit of a, there's a little bit of a link, uh, little guy against the big guy narrative here too, which is, you know, those are always fun to watch. Yeah. I'm, I'm always a fan of the rooting for David versus the Goliath. I think much like my grandfather, I always root for the underdog. Speaking of dogs, I apologize listeners for my dog, Walter in the background, who's I don't even know where he is. I I stood up to look out the windows and I can't see him. So it's probably a squirrel or the neighbor's puppy, you know, dogs, man. Um, On a lighthearted note this week, the election board also heard all the challenges to candidacy. Did you watch any of that? You guys, I read the non-doc article about what happened. um, Holy moly. I wish so, I had watched it. I, I didn't I, think I would hear about is it the the smell of cat urine? Yep. <laughs> in a yeah. candidacy hearing. So yeah. So the uh, representative McDougal, I think, right? So yes. who listeners may remember during the teacher walkout, he's the guy that did the Facebook Live video, like from the floor of the of the house that was not well received. Wasn't that him? Yeah. So. He had a challenge in his candidacy. His opponent said he doesn't that McDougal doesn't live in the district. It's clear that McDougal has like three homes, like three apartments in different parts of the state. At the end of it, I'm not really sure exactly where he lives, but he like he had witnesses on his behalf. One of them was like a woman who actively dislikes him, and he like brought that up, like you hate me, don't you? And she's like, I do, yeah, I don't like you. And but like she was testifying that like, I don't like you because of this reason at this apartment. And he was like, see, that's why I do live here. Um, it was really very bizarre. 
And then th another one, the election board approved and the guy very clearly lives, it's on the panhandle and he definitely lives in Colorado. He said like he spends most nights in Colorado, all of his clothes are in Colorado and something else. And at the end of it, they were like, yeah, okay, he's fine to go. And even Pat McFerrin, uh, kind of, you know, local Politico and pollster was like, if they support this guy, then the residency requirement is like, doesn't really matter. And then like two minutes later, he's like, okay, it doesn't matter. They must not matter because this guy clearly lives in Colorado and yet they allowed him to stay. And so I, it was read the non-doc article listeners. It is absolutely fascinating and a little, it's like watching a really dramatic post on next door. I think, right? Like this is, can I also say just as a, as an aside, if you don't regularly read non-doc, you're doing it wrong and you should, but these last few weeks and this week in particular, they have been like Trace and his crew there have been on fire. Yeah. Yeah. I texted Trace in the night just to say that like, Hey man, you're always good, but like you've been really been exceptional. Um, I'm sure he's just, I imagine he's got like six screens with all these zoom calls going on where he's just <laughs> listening to different committee meetings. Um, he, but that was, was really interesting. I think it was when uh, when the governor said that Medicaid was on the ballot. He was like, "I had just finished up, was about to go home. Then yeah. we dropped the eight hundred two is going to be on the ballot in June. It's forty five minutes later, and now I have seventeen tabs open." <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Well, we talk about how uh, the pandemic has changed the way that our economy is functioning, but it has also changed the way that uh, journalists are doing their jobs. They're having to tune in virtually and, and call into things. And um, I'm sure it's taking up a whole lot of their time trying to keep up with everything going on since they can't physically be in the spaces that they normally would be to get that intel to keep us um, informed of what's going on. So I definitely value them. I value the frontier. Um, even the Oklahoman has some great stuff too. And so our, our local media is doing a great job in this time, keeping us informed about what's going on. Yeah, it's been really sad as as there's been cuts to the kind of more traditional media of the Oklahoman and, uh, and some of those outfits that we've seen the rise of these independent firms that has been really great. So um, kudos to all of those hardworking journalists. I'm um, going back to the election board yesterday on Thursday, the Oklahoma League of Women Voters, uh, as well as two just individuals, a nurse and a woman who is a cancer survivor, filed a legal action against the election board to try and force some changes to be made to the absentee voting process, right? Um, basically, they're trying to make voting by mail safer and easier and more accessible while still maintaining the integrity and the security of our elections. And this is something, um, there's also like a coalition that's formed around this. Let's Fix This is a member of the coalition along with a ton of other state uh, organizations in our state. Um, you can go to letoklahoma.vote um, and see um, the list of organizations. This is, it's like the Let the People Vote Coalition is kind of what we've called it. Um, and earlier in the week, uh, the coalition sent a letter to the election board asking the election secretary to make some changes to the instruction form that is included with all the absentee ballots. And because... You know, if you've seen my emails that I've sent from Let's Fix This, I think there was a lot of kind of debate about whether or not the notary requirement is a law or a rule or what. And it it is a law, but there are 
just because you cite one piece, there's more story to it, right? And it seems pretty clear from the legal experts I've actually spoken with that while the notary requirement is a, is a law, other places in the law have shown that the election board, election secretary has the uh, jurisdiction to kind of define how that's enforced. And it, the notarization isn't necessarily required of a notary public, right? It could be a self-notarization or attestation that you promise that this person, like yourself, you are the person you say you are under penalty of perjury, right? It would still be a felony if you lied, which is basically the same thing as the notary. And so that's the, the point of this is it, it would not require legislative action um, in the opinion of the of the coalition and, and these folks took it a step further, right? So they like said, well, it's clear that he's, cause he wrote back to our letter and said, no, like you're wrong. It's the law. I can't change it. Um, Pro Tem Treat said they're talking about it. Uh, I saw today that the state of Kentucky made some pretty sweeping changes to their election stuff. They have a primary on June 23rd and same thing. They said, okay, absentee ballots don't require notarization. Um, anybody can get one for any reason, which is already the case in Oklahoma. Uh, and so the Supreme Court will be hearing this next Wednesday. It's before a referee. Um, so both sides will hear it uh, next Wednesday. So hopefully we'll have a response pretty quick because they got to start printing those absentee ballots like next week. It also bears mentioning too that not everyone who submits an absentee ballot is required to have the signature of a notary, right? So like we already accept ballots in Oklahoma every year that are absentee ballots that aren't notarized. Like, that's a thing. It happens every election. It happens from military service members that are stationed overseas. It happens for government workers or other expats that work, live and work outside of the continental U.S. There's some other groups that are uh, uh, kind of excluded from the notary requirement. So this isn't, like, a brand new thing. This would just say that no one, like, no one needs the notary. Well, and to make the connection for our, our listeners, this is related to maintaining public health and safety of Oklahomans. Uh, there was a lot of attention on Wisconsin a couple of weeks ago um, when they had their primary um, election. And the news even reported that there were folks who became COVID-19 positive after going to the physical voting booth. And so it's an important conversation now to ensure that people don't have to choose between uh, exercising their right to vote and maintaining their, their physical health and safety. Um, since there's so many unknowns about um, COVID-19 that we're still figuring out. Um, and so putting these mechanisms in place ensures that people can still participate and have that peace of mind to not put themselves at risk because there is a level of still having to interact with people um, and congregate in some ways of getting in a line and, and managing all of that. And so, um, and of course the timeline that you mentioned, Andy, is key that this decision has to be made quickly so that the election board can operate accordingly and people have enough time to receive their ballots um, and have more time to make that decision for who they want to vote for and, and be able to participate. So I, I do have a question about the lawsuit, if you know the answer. Um, and you may not, because you're not like a party to it, right? And neither is Let's Fix This. It's his League of League of Women Voters and whatnot. But like, so 
the contention is that like, yes, the notary requirement is in the law, but that the secretary has the power to waive that requirement. Right? Not quite. That's, I mean, that's the, that's a simple way to explain it, but that's, he's not waiving the requirement. All he needs to do is change the instructions, right? So when you get an absentee ballot, there's the ballot itself and there's a piece of paper with instructions for how to fill it out and who signs what. And on the, the, the truth is like on the, the, the legislature took away the actual, like the actual notary requirement several years ago, like 18 years ago, but it has been in effect, like as a de facto rule ever since then. But if the election board secretary would just change that instruction form to let folks know, like you can have it notarized or you can self notarize like an ad, you know, a blurb maybe that says like under, you know, penalty of perjury under whatever the code is, you know, I, I attest that this is true and correct that by just changing those instructions, he, he could effectively allow people to vote by mail without having to go get a notary. Sure. But it's within his purview to decide whether to do that or not. Right. Like, it, are, they wanting, are they wanting, are they wanting the court to say, you have to do this, right? Because like it's his decision. Well, yeah. What's so the, he says the, it's like, not his decision, though. But well, he even says if, it, yeah, he says it's he, not his decision. He says it's not his decision. But even if, the, but even if the court says no, it is your decision. He can also just be like, okay, I'm not doing that. Yeah. Um. Well, yes and no. Right. Like, what's the, like, I guess I don't understand what the like legal mechanism is to like force them to do that. It's a, it's a, so we file, sorry, not we, they filed a writ of mandamus, right? Which is basically uh, an order from a court um, ordering the government official to officially like do their duty. So they would basically be telling him he has to do it. Um, and if you go to the website, let Oklahoma.vote uh, and you click on learn more, you can see the letter that the coalition sent uh, on the 20th. And it says in there, uh, because there was a, a, a statute enacted in 2002, it says, whenever under any Oklahoma, under any law of Oklahoma or under any rule, order, or requirement, um, any matters required to be blah, 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 blah. Um, basically, it's a sworn statement or affidavit. Um, the matter may with like force and set effect be supported. Basically, it says anyone who signs an affidavit with a certain wording, it has the same effect as a, as a notary. And so you could self-notarize. Yeah. So the the lawsuit is asking the court to force the election secretary to do this. He doesn't think he has the power and I get it. So he's also like the secretary of the Senate. Um, and I'm sure he knows, right? Like where his bread is buttered. He has to work with the legislature and, and by all accounts, Paul Xerox runs really good elections, right? Like he's a really good election secretary. And I think he is, he's a cautious guy which is what you want in an election secretary, right? Like you want someone who's like, I will do whatever it is to the letter of the law and be very good at it. And I think this is the case where he is, doesn't want to step out of line. Um, and so I think maybe if it was me, I'm, I'm kind of that way too, right? Like if it was me, if I was in his shoes and someone came to me and said, listen, we want you to do this. And I was like, I don't know that I can. Like, okay, well, we're going to get the court to tell you, you can. Okay. Like if the court tells me I can, fine, right? But I'm not not going to do it on my own accord because then I'm it's put me out there. Is he appointed? Like is he an appointed official or what's? I don't know. 
is he like hired by the legislature? I'm curious how you get that job. Um, he used to work for the Senate. Um, he was like press secretary for the Republican party. I don't know, 15 years ago or something. Um, 10 years ago. I don't know. So I know he's been around for a while, but I do okay. believe it's an appointed position. Yeah. Could be. He's been there for a while though. Hadn't he? Yeah. 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 I'm, Cause I mean, I, I believe that the election secretary can be changed, but there are some positions in government where right. people stay on uh, across um, administrations. So sure. Yeah. And, and, and as a testament to how well he does his work. Yeah. He stayed on, you know, across a couple of governors. Yeah. A couple governors yeah. so. mm-hmm. All right. Well, um, so stay tuned for more on that. We'll have more on that next week, undoubtedly. All right. Of course, uh, as we kind of wrap up here, we've got about five, 10 minutes left in COVID related news. The University of Oklahoma Health Sciences Center has made a new faster test. They said they can test 180,000 samples in the next 90 days, which is maybe not as many as we would like to see, but that's a hell of a lot more than we're doing right now. Um, The governor announced his plan to reopen the state. Um, Some of it happened today and a bunch more happens next week. Obviously not everyone's on board with that. And as of about an hour ago, shortly before we started recording, Mayor Holt um, had a, a press conference where he announced his plans to lift the shelter in place order beginning on May 1st some things like social distancing, you know, no groups larger than 10 and other sanitary guidelines are still in place. Um, I watched about half of Holt's remarks and he was very measured and like, I don't know that he feels very hundred percent good about this. Like he, he's looked at the data and it seems like based on white house indications and their guidelines this is what he should do. But he acknowledged like the data is not overwhelming, right? Like at best we are, it, hopefully it's a decline. It may just be a plateau after a decline. Um, and if the data ticks back up in the next week, he will not do this. And if it ticks back up after this, um, he will shut things back down again. And and Mayor Holt even got choked up um, and got a little tearful as he said. He said this is the hardest speech um, he's had to give in this whole deal. Um, and he has good comedic timing and I think presence and he recognized it. He didn't, he didn't intend to run for mayor to be the one to shut down the, to close bars at five o'clock on St. Patrick's day, which is what happened. And, uh, uh, this whole, this whole deal has been very difficult. Um, so, uh, they also announced a website. Do I need a COVID-19 test.com? Do I need a COVID-19 test.com that gives some guidelines? I haven't, I kind of glanced at it. I suspect it is guidelines for who needs a test based on your symptoms um, as opposed to the idea that everyone needs to be tested because testing is still not as widely available. And it's a nationwide deal that we don't have the tests we need, particularly like antibody tests and all of that. So um, Scott, I'm going to click it to you for our weekly update on the numbers. Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't, I mean, the numbers right now, like the, the thing that's hard about this, right, is that right now in Oklahoma, we're not like in a bad spot, right? Like we are, we're doing well in terms of hospital capacity. We're doing well in terms of uh, ventilator capacity. We're doing well in terms of ICU capacity. Um, and that's because of all the measures 
that we have in place to limit spread, right? But something that's really important to understand is that spread is not is not at zero, right? There is still community transmission. Every single day when the health department ups, ups the numbers, there are new cases, right? There has not been a single day where there have been zero new cases. Now, I think New Zealand is like the only place in the world that's maybe going to uh, like completely like halt transmission, but we still have community transmission at significant levels, right? And so if you still have significant community transmission opening up the economy, like, like kind of, you know, starting to let people go back to the jobs and restaurants and hair salons, and these things carries with it a risk of increasing community transmission right now. If you have sufficient testing capacity, you can do that. But the more like the more potential new hotspots there are, right? So today there's like 105 new patients that are positive, or 120 something. Like it's, it's right out. It's like right at 100. I haven't looked at Twitter in half an hour, so <laughs> I don't. I don't remember exactly what it is, but right. So that's like a hundred new people, right? In addition to the however many hundreds of active cases that we already have, each one of those is potentially a vector that can give it to somebody else, right? So the more of those that you have, the more surveillance you need to detect new cases. Does that make sense, right? Like you can get away with only running 2,000 tests a day when everybody is at home and not going to work and not going to restaurants and not doing those things. But when you still have active community transmission and people go kind of back out into the world, if you don't have the testing capacity, then you run the risk of missing new outbreaks and you're going to miss them until they become big enough that they're like self-evident. And then you're like, then, then you've got a problem. Right. And so that's what I think. That's what I think folks, um, you know, public health officials, some folks that are in the healthcare space are kind of, are worried about, you know, no one, no one wants this to go on, right? <laughs> like no one wants the economy to be shut down. Like no one wants all the restaurants to be closed. No one wants to not be able to see their family. Like no, like literally no one wants this, right? But it's, it's like a risk. Like how much risk is there of a significant spike in cases and kind of a new outbreak with a second peak if we do this too fast, right? And I don't know if we're doing it too fast or not, right? Like, I, don't, I don't know. Like, this is, I don't, I don't claim to like have like the crystal ball that says, Oh, now is the right time. Um, right. But I, I think, you know, um, we will find out, right. Like history will bear this out because in four to six weeks, if cases tick back up, like, whoop, okay. It was too early. Right. If they keep going down, then maybe we're doing okay. But that's a, that's a tough deal. You can't always know until you just do it. I think the fear though, is that cases won't tick back up. That cases will spike. Right. Like a tick up is not, it's not good, but like a tick up we can handle. And the problem I think is at least as I'm thinking about this is that I'm not sure we have enough testing capacity to detect a slight uptick. Right. Like we have the testing capacity to detect a spike. Right. But if you wait until there's a spike, you may be too late. Right. Um, I don't know that we have the testing capacity to detect an uptick. You know, like this new test that OU um, has is a sounds like it's a good test, and it's it's certainly like significant improvement. But it's one hundred eighty thousand tests over ninety days, right? So that's one hundred eighty thousand tests over ninety days. That's sixty thousand tests a month for three months. That's um, sixty thousand tests a month is divided by thirty. That's what two thousand tests a day. So that's like that's taking the state capacity from two thousand a day to four thousand a day, 
which is good, right? Like that's better. But there are a lot of public health officials that say we need to be at like closer to 10, 12, 15,000 tests a day before we take some of these steps. Um, and we're just not there yet. And that's not just that we couldn't be there in another month, um, but we're just not yet. So we'll see what happens. Um, like, I, you know, I was joking earlier about, you know, like we beat the coronavirus. I think it is incredibly important for people to understand that that is not what this means, right? Um, um, yeah, that's not what like this, this, it is too soon to say that this is over. Well, and I think there's even realization from leaders, when elected leaders, those who are in agencies, others who are working on coronavirus, that there is potential that we may have to say, okay, everybody, we're going back to stay at home, like stay in place. And so um, it's it's definitely a risk for us to, to take these steps. But I think there is also acknowledgement that this thing could continue on. And that means we will be trying to beat coronavirus for even longer should these upticks happen or yeah, these yeah these flares or whatever you want to call it it i mean like everything else with this deal this is uncharted territory where we have we have the best you know we've got good data we try to make good decisions but we honestly don't know because we haven't been in this situation before and so it's a tough deal um there are clearly bad ideas like injecting yourself with Lysol or other household cleaners. Um, but there there are a lot of unknowns out there for um, for what we should do. And that's a scary place to be. So this week, this next week, as we look ahead, will be another eventful week, right? We, as we said, we'll hear about that uh, League of Women Voters uh, lawsuit. We will... Um, I don't know if we'll hear, I don't think we'll hear about the tribal gaming thing. That'll probably take several weeks. Um, but the cities will be preparing for reopening on uh, on May 1st. And also uh, in the legislature, the governor's emergency, catastrophic health emergency powers act, CHIPA, we discussed a few episodes ago with Brian Jones, will expire, right? It was a 30 day approval in the legislature. And so, what has to happen with that is that the governor would have to reissue it and then the legislature would have to come back to reauthorize it. Bailey, do you think that's going to happen? I think it depends on what happens from here. There's so many unknowns. There wasn't a lot of things that the governor did during these 30 days using CHIPA. So I don't think it's likely that he would re-invoke it, uh, but you never know. Something could happen next week. Uh, that could lead the governor to feel the need to reissue that power. Um, but if we're moving towards opening things up, then it doesn't seem like there is a case being built for the rationale to maintain that power. So, but again, things change moment to moment. So I guess we'll see what happens and, and see if the legislature deems him those powers for another 30 days. Yeah, I don't think he's gonna. I don't think he's gonna declare it and try to get a reauthorization. You know, on April thirtieth, whether he does it on May thirtieth is an open question. Right. <laughs> well, before June, you mean? Um, I mean, depending on what our case count is on May thirtieth, after right. we uh, after we've opened the economy back up. 
So. Yeah, that's that's my thought is that right now things are pretty smooth. As you said, he didn't, it's not like he changed a bunch of laws or anything. Even, you know, we talked about him being arguably the most powerful governor in history with this declaration. Um, but he used it also to mobilize some of the National Guard and to do some things. If things are smoothed out, you may not need that now. But yeah, we can check back in 30 days and let's see where we're at. Of course, in 30 days, it'll just be kind of the beginning of, of when things start looking bad. So, uh, so we'll see. I think all, you know, all of us have our fingers crossed that things are going to continue to get better as we move towards summertime and people will continue to social distance. I think, you know, wearing our masks, all that jazz, um, as we just try to get through this for the next, uh, however long it takes before we get a vaccine. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of the episode. Bailey, thank you for being here. Thank you. Scott, thank you, sir. It is always a delight. I, I don't like how you paused to think about that for a moment. No, I was pausing to I was pausing to un to unmute my microphone. Oh, okay, that makes more sense. <laughs> I've, um, been, I've been having to type uh, type and text and stuff and work on my other device whilst we've been uh, podcasting, and so I've been intermittently muted to avoid the constant back, backdrop of clickety clack. On behalf of our listeners, I appreciate that. Yeah, well, I do what I can. <laughs> listeners, uh, don't forget to subscribe and rate Let's Pod This uh, because that helps other people discover us and become better informed. Remember, you can connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at Let's Fix This Okay. Scott is at SC Melson. Bailey is at Bailey M. Perkins. And I'm at Andy OKC. If you want to hit any of us up, you can also drop us an email at podcast at letsfixthisok.org. You can like our Facebook page and all that stuff. Everything is Let's Fix This Okay. Just Google that and you'll find us somewhere. Can I say one last thing? Yes. Um, please, please, no one try to ingest any sort of Lysol or Clorox or other anti-disinfectant you know, disinfectant, uh, cleaner into any body surface or orifice. Scott, he said he was being facetious. Just, just saying to see what people would think. Got him. All right. Um, if you go to our website, you can also make a donation, sign up, um, to even sponsor an episode if that's an interest for you. And that'd be really cool. Our podcast is edited and produced by Scott Bailey and me. And we are a member of the Mostly Harmless Media Network. Our music is Rhino Funk by artist So Down. Let's Fix This is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization who strives to educate and equip all Oklahomans to engage with the government. We encourage you to get involved any way you can. And remember, decisions are made by those who show up. Have a great week, everybody.